On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about the very first Christians, and especially we want to talk about how people became Christians with the idea in mind that if we do today what they did then, we we should have the same result they had. So we're going to talk about cases of conversion that we find recorded in the book of Acts. That's going to be our study on the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Stay with us. We're going to get started with that study right after this. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and this is the virtual bible study for thursday august the 18th 2022 my name is greg gwynn uh with me tonight on the program is josh mccord josh welcome Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. Looking forward to our study tonight. Behind the board, as usual, Kyle Barnes. Kyle, welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks for your help tonight in getting this out on the air. Uh, Don't really have any news headlines or uh, specific updates about things happening here at College View, so we can dive right into our study. Uh, I think this is an important study, Josh. Along the lines of what I was saying earlier, We can read in our Bibles about what people did in the first century. We can can learn lots about what they did in in the first century under the guidance of the inspired apostles and prophets. Uh, And that's a a worthy approach in all kinds of things that pertain to our religious service. But tonight we want to talk about probably the most basic thing. What were people taught and what did they do in the very earliest days of Christianity— in order to be saved, in order to become Christians, what did they do? And so if we would go back and study those cases, we would learn what we need to do today. Yeah, we want to be saved, and so I think you're right. Let's just do what they did, and then we'll know that we're saved. So earlier today, I sent out an update to our list. If you're not on our update list, get on it by sending us an email to questions at collegeu.com. Just say, add me to the list. And about midday on Thursday, you'll learn what we're going to be talking about that night with some questions that you can begin to study. And you could also send us some comments. We've got a few email comments uh, from some of our regular listeners tonight. We'll be looking at those. I suggested six. There's more than this. Josh, you know, I think maybe people... uh, would underestimate this, but the book of Acts can reasonably be called the book of conversions because it just is just packed full of cases of conversion. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you were to take a poll, how many cases of convert how many people were converted to Christianity and their and their story recorded in the book of Acts, I think you'd probably get guesses like twelve or <laughs> twenty. Actually there's thousands. Thousands. Yeah. yeah, literally thousands. But I just picked out a few of these cases, uh, and I sent these to our update list earlier today. Number one, the 3,000 people who were saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Number two, the people of the city of Samaria recorded in Acts 8, and then also in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. Number four, Saul of Tarsus. Number five, Cornelius and his household. And finally, number six, the Philippian jailer and his household. Now, what I asked to our update list is, in looking at those cases of conversion, what are the main points that you would pull out? The main points that need to be emphasized as you see it in the, there's whole sermons yeah. can and should be preached on every one of those cases of conversions. Uh, and I, I don't know if in your young preaching life, if you've done that yet or not, Josh, but I have. Yeah. I, I got sermons on every one of those cases, some, sometimes more than one sermon on those cases. And so literally whole sermons can be preached on any one of these. But I was just interested in in picking people's brains to see what do you think is maybe the most important thing to emphasize 
from these cases. So let's start out with the people on the day of Pentecost. Of course, their story is in Acts chapter 2. Josh, what do you think? What's your big takeaway here? Well, I've got to confess to you. I had trouble just picking out one or two main points. (laughs) There's too many. I know. I know. But but so I put down for the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, I noted verse 36. Uh, it says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's a whole lot to be said about that one verse. But what I noted was that uh, Peter's preaching was going to let them know that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the the Savior. And, and they had crucified him. So that, that's one of the main points uh, that. Well, uh, let me stop you there on that point. Verse 36. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Right. You know, the word Christ means the anointed one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think people are glad to acknowledge Jesus as Christ because that he gives me something as my anointed savior. He gives me something, but he's also Lord, which which indicates his master status that we have to submit and obey. So he is Lord and Christ. He's not just Christ. Mm He's Lord and Christ, and I think that's the important thing to stress there. Sure. Uh, before we move to that verse, I would also stress, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. So it's possible to know, to be assured that this is the truth. And such assured knowledge is a necessary component of being saved. Right. If you haven't been taught, and if you don't know assuredly that these things are true, then you're not ready to yeah. act yet. Yeah. I think it's really important, you know, that he took all of these Old Testament prophecies from Joel and he used all these things in order to prove that he was uh, who he said he was. Uh, but so that, that's the first thing uh, I thought of verse 36. And then we're talking about conversion. So the response to what Peter had just told them uh, in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So, uh, I think without a doubt in verse 37, they were asking, what should we do about all the things that you just told us? So you have just told us that God sent his son to be a savior and we killed him. We're guilty of crucifying the savior. Yeah. What do we do about that? And that's when he told him in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, And so that's what they did as you read down through here. So in verse 37, they were convicted of their sin. Mm-hmm. They were, and, and I, I believe you could actually say they were sorry for what they had done. Right. But they were still told to repent. Probably draws yeah. out that distinction between just being sorry right. for what you've done and really turning. Right. A, turn, a change of heart that leads to a change of action is repentance. But they had to repent and be baptized right. to be saved. Now, I think a, a really important thing to draw out there in verse 38 is that repentance and baptism precede salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people get get the order of events all mixed up. And, and most everybody agrees that you have to repent in order to be saved. Right. But a lot of people want to get baptism after you're saved. You were talking to me uh, last night about mm-hmm. somebody you talked to who... You, oh, I think you were watching a video of a, right. uh, of a, of a Baptist church nearby. Right. And so they were saying, oh, this young man got saved a, saved good, a, while, a, while, a good while back. back. Yeah. yeah. He's just he's just following through a baptism now. Right. That's not the pattern here. Right. So, so the people who were convicted of their sins, they were told to repent and be baptized. And, and the expression there in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, the word for... Uh, there in the Greek is, we would say it, ice. If you spelled it with English letters, you'd spell it E-I-S, ice. Mm-hmm. And that word means unto, in order to. And so they were to repent in order to be saved. But they were also, notice that that's joined with the conjunction and, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So if you have to repent, you also have to be, be baptized in order to receive the remission of sins. And I think uh, a, a really good comparison here, if we go back to Matthew chapter 26, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. 
And in Matthew 26, 28, he says, for this is my blood of the New Testament, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper. This is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus shed his blood so that the remission of sins could be possible. He didn't shed his blood because the remission of sins had already taken place. He he shed his blood in order to accomplish the remission, the forgiveness of sins uh, on the part of those who would be obedient. But in the Greek, and and we don't we don't argue a lot about the Greek. You know, we're not Greek scholars. We don't think you have to know the Greek in order to learn what the new testament teaches but here's an interesting that's exactly the same phrase exactly to the letter the same phrase in the greek in matthew 26 28 as we find here in acts 2 38 jesus said repent and be baptized for newer translations even say unto mm-hmm. the remission of sins you're not saved until you're baptized baptism is for or unto the remission of sins. right maybe just to expound a little bit um, as well, I thought in verse 37, it's important because they asked what they needed to do. It stirred them up for action. In that lesson that, you're, that you had referenced that I was watching, this Baptist preacher, he's, he was making the point, we don't do anything. It's God does it all, uh, and we don't do anything. Well, in this verse, they were stirred to action. They said, what do we need to do? We've already, we've already sinned. Now what do we need to do? What actions do I need to take in order to take care of that? And then he told them, repent, which repentance is hard. It takes a yeah. lot of work to yeah, do that. I think that's the hardest thing. Yeah, and then being baptized, that's a, that's a physical act uh, in order to be done to order, in order to have forgiveness of sins. That was something they needed to do. He, he didn't say, well, there's really nothing to yeah, do. Nothing to do. Just, just you, you believe, believe and, now. You and obviously God believe now, yeah. and, and so it's, right. it's all good. No, they were told there was something to do. Right. Uh, Kent in Georgia says, a study of the concept of New Testament conversion as recorded in the book of Acts is valuable to our study of salvation. If individuals obey the same truth as those in the first century, then they can come, become exactly what those individuals became in the first century. Christians, only Christians, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Those who obeyed the gospel on Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2 present valuable information in at least three areas. One, the value of fulfilled prophecy, the deity of Christ and divine proof that he, wa- that he was and is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament is clearly set forth by virtue of fulfilled prophecy. Number two, the factor that accountable humanity plays an important role regarding biblical faith and responding to the conditions of the gospel in order to be saved, Acts 2.38. Now, as you were just saying, there's something they had to do. And then finally, the connection of the church of Christ to that of salvation. While the church does not save anyone, nonetheless, the church is essentially connected to salvation in that such is comprised of all those who have, by the blood of Christ, been saved from past sins. There are no saved individuals outside the New Testament church. And he's he's making that point a very good one from verse 47. Actually, if we read verse 41, they that on the day of Pentecost... Verse 41, they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And verse 47 says uh, that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so I think Kent's point is a really good one. If If we do what we honestly must do in order to be saved, then that automatically puts us in the church that belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you are saved, and you and in this sense, you don't join the church because this is the ch- the universal church. This is the church comprised of all saved be, uh, individuals. When you do what you must do in order to be saved, the Lord adds you to His universal church of saved people. Now, and, and some uh, we don't talk about that a lot. I, when I was a kid, I remember preachers really pounding on that point. You don't join the church; you're added to the church. Now, there is the sense in which we join a, a local body of believers like, like the uh, Apostle Paul did in Acts 9 or Saul of Tarsus did in Acts 9. He essayed or made effort to join himself to the saints in Jerusalem. And so there is the sense of joining a local body of believers, but we are added to the church. If you're saved, the Lord adds you to the church. Uh, Grant in Franklin, Tennessee says concerning the 3,000 on Pentecost. Joel's prophecy was fulfilled that day, the day of Pentecost, in the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 30. The Lord's church was established on that day. Matthew 16, 18, remember Jesus said, Mm -hmm. I will build my church. The kingdom was established on that day, 
Matthew 16, 19. Very good, Grant. He says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Verse 47 of Acts 2. I think you're exactly right, Grant. Uh, Dwight in Io says, in Acts 2, we see Peter spoke to the people as non-Christians. He told them exactly what they did in crucifying Jesus. Peter then told them that they had to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. In doing this, the Lord added those who received the word and repented and were baptized to the church. Uh, very good, Dwight. I think you're exactly right. That's a powerful case study. That those, By the way, uh, Josh, those were the very first Christians. I mean, you can't go any farther back. Those were the very first Christians who were members of the Lord's church. And we read what they were doing in order to accomplish their salvation and be added to that church. If I want that same outcome, then why wouldn't I do exactly the same thing? We should. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. All right, we're going to grab a break. When we come back, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 8, and we're going to talk about the people on uh, the people in the city of Samaria and their conversion as recorded in Acts 8, the first half of the chapter. And we'll get to that right after these brief words. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Here's a quick thought. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. If as a child you feared displeasing your earthly father, how much more should you fear your heavenly father? The promise is compassion for those who fear him. Think about it. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. If folks did not carry gossip, it would not go so far. Bad men excuse their faults. Good men abandon them. The road to success is always under construction. Love will find a way. Indifference will find an excuse. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. Tonight we're talking about lessons learned from cases of conversion in the book of Acts. We want you to participate in this discussion. We already have some emails. We'd be glad to take more. Josh is watching the email inbox. We also have the live chat window open. and We see uh, uh, Brian in California is there. Dwight in Iowa is there. Uh, guest 826 is there, says he hasn't been live in a long time, and he hopes he can stay awake because <laughs> he's got, what does he say there, three uh, three boys, three and a half and younger. That would make you tired at the end uh, of the yes day. Yes, it would. So uh, we're, glad to have, we're glad to have everybody in the chat room. Or you can give us a call, uh, 931-381-4567. We'd love to have your participation in the virtual Bible study tonight. We're talking about cases of conversion. So we want to move to Acts chapter 8. And we want to talk about the people in the city of Samaria. Uh, again, powerful stuff here. Uh, I, I would point out that, well, well, first of all, verse 6 says, Philip, uh, uh, when he came to, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people of one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. I think one of the things that we would point out here is we believe the miracles of the New Testament. We believe, but they, we believe they had a specific purpose, and that purpose is illustrated here in the case of Philip when he went to the city of Samaria. He preached Christ, and the people saw the miracles which he could perform. Philip was a man who had miraculous power. Go back to chapter 6. We know he got that by the laying on of the apostles' hands. But the miracles he worked were a form of confirmation, a badge of authenticity. As he went to a new place and he was preaching a new message, there needed to be some proof that this message really was from God and the miracles served that purpose. Uh, we understand that was the important purpose of miracles, to reveal and confirm the truth of God. And we see that here in the case of Philip as he went to the city of Samaria. What's interesting in Samaria is that these people had previously they they had a previous religious conviction they had followed a, a deceiver a man named simon he's, he's identified as a sorcerer uh so he he is a guy who had deceived the people by 
what we would probably call magical tricks, sleight of hand, uh, sorcery. Uh, We understand that sorcery in the first century time frame sometimes even included the administering of drugs to keep people under a spell. but but it, he was very popular in the city of Samaria. Verse 10 says, they, they all gave heed to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And so they were fully deceived by Simon the sorcerer. Notice, but in verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Peter's, or excuse me, Philip's message was compelling and convincing and these people who had been under the domination of Simon the sorcerer could see the difference between his fakery and the real thing that Philip was preaching and the real miracles, by the way, that he was performing. And so they believed and were baptized. If you want to know sort of how powerful this was, verse 13 says that Simon himself believed also when he was baptized. And so the preaching of Philip even convinced this Simon, the sorcerer of the truth, and he himself was obedient to the gospel. Very amazing. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about this in verse, um, let's see, five there that you read. So Philip went down and his purpose was to preach Christ unto them. You know, people today says, preach Jesus. And so he did. That's what he went to do. He preached Christ. In verse 12, it said he preached the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And people were baptized. And so it that, didn't say he preached baptism. Yeah, so he didn't, he didn't have a whole lesson surrounding baptism that it says, but he talked about Christ. He preached Christ, and he preached the kingdom, and the people's response was being baptized. So that just tells me by just yeah. taking a look, then yeah. preaching about Christ and the kingdom necessitates that he was talking about baptism to them. Yeah. Uh, or it includes baptism, right, among right. other things. Uh one other thing that I think we important thing we see in in the case of Simon the sorcerer and his conversion is that he subsequently sinned. So Peter and John, two of the apostles, came down to Samaria, and uh, and they were laying hands on people to impart to them the miraculous measures of the Holy Spirit. And Simon saw that, verse 18, that by the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said to him, Thy thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Sometimes we, we, we refer to this as the second law of pardon. The first law of pardon for the alien sinner is repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Simon the sorcerer had already done that, but he sinned after that. Did he have to be baptized again because now he sinned again? No. For, for, a, for one who has already become a Christian, now what you do is you repent and pray when you sin. And and so this second law of pardon is seen clearly right. here in this case. Right. Our purpose isn't to talk about it, but you can so sin to become lost after yeah. you have been saved. Because in verse uh, 23, uh, it says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. So he needed to, to pray and make things right and repent of the sin that he had done. So I think that's a really good point, that this salvation that we that that we gain is not a one-and-done deal. It's not like... Once saved, always saved. Simon the sorcerer, uh, you know, uh, verse 13, it says that the Holy Ghost inspired this to be written. Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, wondering, beholding miracles and signs. Which, you know, he really believed. The Holy Spirit said he believed, and he was yeah. baptized. By anyone's standard, he's a saved person. At the point, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit says so. Mm-hmm. But he gets, uh, shortly after that, he gets to the point where uh, his heart is not right with God. Verse 23, Peter says he's in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. He sinned. He's, 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 he's lost, and he needs to repent and come back to the, uh, to the right standing with God. That, that case in itself proves that the idea, though you do the initial things to be saved, doesn't mean that you'll always be saved. I think that's really good. Uh, you got anything else on your list? Um, let's see. Well, I, you mentioned it, but I put the laying on of hands by the apostles yeah. to receive the, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, yeah the other, I, and again, our purpose tonight is not right. to talk about the Holy Spirit. Right. But Philip 
had received miraculous power by the laying on the apostles' hand. He could work miracles, right. but he couldn't pass it on. Right. And so the, only the apostles had that power to impart miraculous spiritual gifts yeah. by laying on of hands. It was a one generation. I like to call it a one generation pass. You couldn't yeah. pass it on after that. Uh, Kent says, the account of the conversions in S- Samaria uh, demonstrates the same conditions of salvation as set forth in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. It establishes the fact that the totality of the gospel cannot be preached without also preaching facts regarding the kingdom of Christ which amounts to preaching the truth about the nature of the Lord's church. Also, it's very clear that fallen Christians guilty of sin, what they must do in order to be forgiven of sins in their lives, that second law of pardon we were talking about. Also, the passage proves the limitations of the bestowal of miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those gifts are not extant today in that there are no apostles present to bestow them. Kent's right on our wavelength there. Uh, Grant says... The church continued to increase. Acts 8, verse 4 says, Many of those who heard the message believed. The number of men was about 5,000 in Acts 8, verse 4. Uh, and he says, We see that there is salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. There, uh, Acts 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. There's, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. I think you're right, Grant, on that for sure. Dwight in Iowa says, These people of Samaria believed the word that Philip spoke of the good news of the kingdom of God, and in doing so they were baptized. Simon, who was also there, believed and was baptized. We also see that even though Simon had become a Christian, he fell by the he fell from the truth by trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit and was told that he had to repent of his weakness and pray that God would forgive him. Exactly right. Okay, so a lot to learn from the first half of Acts chapter eight. Let's introduce the second half of Acts chapter 8. We'll have to get a break here in a minute, but Acts 8 is is packed with information, Mm -hmm. Josh. The second half of the chapter, uh, beginning uh, at verse 26, has to do with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. My first point would be here, Josh, uh, verse 26, an angel of the Lord, spake to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. Here's Philip, and he's been in the city. He's converted the whole I mean, obviously, I think we're saying the vast, a huge number mm-hmm. of people were converted in Samaria. He's called away from that work to go off into the desert and talk to one man. That's incredible to me. But uh, I, I think a, a, a big takeaway from that would be the value of every single soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this Ethiopian eunuch, we'll read about him when we come back from a break. But this Ethiopian eunuch was clearly a truth seeker. Uh, he was a devout man, and God was concerned for his salvation and made it so that he could hear the truth of the gospel. So let's let's get to the case of the Ethiopian eunuch when we come back from this break. Get your Bibles open to Acts 8, the second half of the chapter, and we'll talk about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch when we come back from this break. Stay with us. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. My name is Rick Harris, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. I hope you'll join me and many others in this weekly Internet Bible study group. Be sure to listen every Thursday night. This is Greg Gwen with this week's Bullet Point. A highway billboard near here advertises for a local restaurant. Along with promises of good home cooking and friendly service is the proclamation, Open Forever. This caught our eye. It was not the typical open 24 hours per day or open seven days per week. This was a far bolder claim. Forever, as you know, is a very long time. While we may chuckle at and even appreciate the originality of the folks at that restaurant, we know and surely they know that nothing in this world is forever. James wrote in chapter 4, beginning verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go into such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanisheth away. Sadly, too many of God's own children, who are supposed to know better, still act as though their plans, their activities, and their very lives will go on forever. These Christians become totally involved with their work, their recreation, making money, having fun, and so forth. In the process, they woefully neglect their spiritual service to God. Can it be that they have forgotten that nothing here is forever? 
Jesus told of a successful businessman who said to himself, I have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He imagined that his prosperity could last forever. But God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. It's sad to note that many still need that same lesson. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. We want to remind you that the virtual Bible study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about the College View Church by going to our website, collegeview.com. Kyle, there's a whole host of resources on collegeview.com. Yeah, absolutely. Links to, well, past studies on our virtual Bible study and a lot of there's, there's actually a wealth a wealth of knowledge to add to your Bible study on their links to our YouTube pages, which is yeah the virtual Bible study or College View live stream. A lot of putting on a lot of lessons, a lot of studies. So yeah, so you stuff. can find sermons and Bible classes at collegeview.com, and then at thevirtualbiblestudy.com you can find links to all of our past studies. We've been doing the virtual Bible study for over 17 years now. Uh, we're into our 18th year of the virtual Bible study. And so there's a wealth of information there. You can actually find audio and some video. So, uh, some in, in recent years, we have the video links, but we have all of the audio links from all of those past years and just a ton of resources. Someone was asking me recently uh, about how to, to search for things. Uh, there is a search engine now on our website, but to me, the easiest way to search those audio archives of the virtual Bible study is, is to do a control F on your keyboard. And when you do that, a little window pops up. And if you just type in a keyword and, and then it'll highlight on that page everywhere where that keyword is found. It's really easy to find stuff that way. So use the resources on collegeview.com and the virtualbiblestudy.com. Again, if you're anywhere in Middle Tennessee, close by, if you're within driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee, come and visit us at the College View Church of Christ. We're on the west side of Columbia. Uh, very easy to find right across the, the highway from the Columbia State Community College. Uh, come and visit with us if you can. All right, so the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, a great story, a powerful story here, Josh. What, what are your lessons? What are your takeaways? Well, um, that the Ethiopian eunuch was a very prominent character. I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know, just some average Joe. High-ranking uh, government yeah, man. Yeah, and so he had a lot of authority. He was in charge of all of uh, Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, in verse 27, he had charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. And I think you had, you had mentioned he was a truth seeker. He wanted to do things that was pleasing to God. He uh, was already religious. I think one of the – he was already mm-hmm. a, a devout religious yes. man. Yeah. So isn't that good enough? <laughs> well, well, he put forth a lot of effort too. He yeah, came to yeah. Jerusalem to worship, uh, yeah. and so it wasn't it wasn't that he was just devout where he was. He even made the effort to come and worship. But yeah. you're right. So he was reading a prophetic uh, passage uh, from Isaiah about Jesus, about the promised Messiah. Right. Remembering that Isaiah prophesied about 700 years right. before Christ. Right. It's interesting. He didn't know. Uh, was Isaiah talking about himself or some other man? So he yeah. asked. He asked Philip that. He was actually reading from Isaiah 53, right. that beautiful yeah. passage about the suffering of the Savior. Right. Yeah. And so Philip, uh, it says, preached Jesus unto him in verse 35. We mentioned that uh, a little bit ago, but he opened it the or he began the same scripture in verse 35. He opened his mouth, uh, began the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. And then in verse 36, as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? How did he know about baptism? Well, he wouldn't unless preaching Jesus included exactly. what you need to do to be saved, and exactly. that includes baptism. Yeah. That's right. And I always liked that, that uh, they, verse 38, they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and they came up out of the water. Right. You know, there's always this, uh, amazingly, there's this controversy about what is the right mode of baptism you know, is it immersion or is it sprinkling or is it pouring? This was clearly immersion. Right. You know, I mean, if we'd never had any other information, of course, we have plenty of other information. Actually, even the word baptize means to dip or plunge or submerge. But if we had no information about baptism other than this account, we would, yeah. we could conclude that it was immersion. Right. Well, I've heard the lesson. I think I think you preached a lesson about it before titled, Why Stop the Chariot? Yeah. You know, if baptism was not necessary, then why would they go and waste the time stopping yeah. the chariot to go get into this water and baptize yeah. them if it wasn't necessary? That, that's a good point. So this guy 
his salvation was, uh, if, if he was saved when he believed, Philip could have said, yeah. now you Keep go on, on home. You go on home. You've got a long way to go yet. When you get home and after you rest up from your long trip, get somebody to baptize you because it's a good mm-hmm. thing to do. Right. No, they stopped the chariot and he went to the inconvenience of being yeah. baptized then and there because baptism is essential for salvation. Yeah. It's urgent. And as you said, they had to get down into the water and be immersed in the water. You could yeah. just pour a little bit over his head or sprinkle a little bit on him. He had to be buried in baptism. You know what's kind of interesting here, Josh, is that you know, earlier in the chapter, Philip worked miracles in the city of Samaria. There's mm-hmm. no indication that he worked any miracle here. Right. Instead, what he used as the compelling proof that convinced the Ethiopian eunuch was just simple Bible prophecy, the mm-hmm. fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Yeah. And uh, the, the eunuch was persuaded, and he was obedient, and he was saved. He became a Christian, and our point is, if we just imitate that, why wouldn't right. we do the same thing? Uh, Kent says... The conversion of the Ethiopian nobleman establishes that lost religious people need the gospel. This individual was obviously exceptionally religious. He had traveled all the way from Ethiopia to engage in religious activity. Yet he was not a Christian and he needed the truth. His honesty is demonstrated in that he was willing to study the issues involved, which led him to accept the truth in being baptized into Christ and the New Testament church. You know, you mentioned earlier he was he was he was, this guy was a high-ranking government man, and so as such, you know he might have proudly refused to hear what Philip had to say, but but instead he humbly, you know, when Philip said, "Do you understand what you're reading?" I really think that that his humility, the Ethiopian's humility, is said is 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 shown when he said in verse 31, "How can I accept some man should guide me?" And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. You know, if everybody had that humility to say, you know, I'm not sure I understand this. If you do, could you help mm-hmm. me? If everybody had that humility, I'm going to tell you, it would go a long way to resolving the religious division that exists in the world today. Uh, Grant says, concerning this case of conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, preaching Jesus included the necessity of water baptism. And he, and he makes the same point you did from verses 35 and 36. The baptism was immersion in water. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him, and they came up out of the water. Again, clearly the, 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 the baptism here was a baptism by immersion. You know, nobody could rightfully argue that point. Uh, so, you know, I, I heard once a story about a, a debate that was being held, and the guy was trying to, one man in the debate was trying to argue that this, that Philip just sprinkled the eunuch. He said, when, when the eunuch said, see, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? He was holding out his canteen. Uh, you know, so he's traveling along in the chariot, and, he, and, and he's, he holds out his canteen to Philip and said, see, here's water, what does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip just, that would be okay, except for the part there in verse 38 where it says they both went down into the water. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. if it, it, it had been a canteen big enough, they could get vocated inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Some people will work to all ends to try yeah. and stretch the, right. the, the Bible stories. Any, any thoughts on that one, Kyle? No, I think it's pretty definitive. I think it really uh, is. That is, yeah, immersion. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's important, too, that he rejoiced in verse 39 only after he had been baptized. So I like to make the point that our religion should involve emotion, but mm-hmm. emotions are not, that's not what right. drives the matter. Emotions don't prove anything. Right. Emotions are the result, not the producer right. of salvation. Yeah, after he did what he needed to, then he was rejoicing yeah. because yeah. he had done what he needed to do. Exactly right. All right, we got a big one here, Josh. Chapter 9 then talks about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We'll have to go kind of quick here if we're going to get all of these in. But So we remember that Saul of Tarsus was, a, was an adamant persecutor of the church. He was on his way to Damascus to hunt down Christians uh, so that they would be persecuted. Mm-hmm. The Lord appeared to him on the way. Uh, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the prick. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So he wasn't saved on the road to Damascus. There was something. Right. He said, When he asked, What should I do? 
Jesus didn't say to him, well, you're saved now because you, you, you believe in me. Right. He said, go in the city. It will be told you what you must do. He, he was blinded from the experience, and he went into the city, and he was three days without sight, neither did eat or drink. So he's fasting for three days. The Lord appears to a man named uh, Ananias, and he said to Ananias, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Okay, now here's my point that I like. For three days he was fasting and praying. Well, what do a lot of our religious friends tell us? What if if we would ask a lot right here mm-hmm. in our own community, a lot of people we know, what do you have to do to be saved? Well, you have to believe and you have to pray the sinner's prayer. Yeah. So here's Saul of Tarsus, who clearly believes He's a sinner. He called. He was a sinner. <laughs> he was praying. And he was praying, and he knew. He called Jesus Lord. He knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, he saw and spoke to Jesus. So he was a believer. He was convicted that he was a sinner. He was fasting and he was praying. But what did Ananias say to him when he came in to him in Acts 22, verse 16? So over in Acts 22, Paul retells his own conversion. And he he tells what Ananias told him. When Ananias came to him, a sinner who's fasting and praying, a believing sinner who fasts and prays, but Ananias says, Why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Acts twenty two sixteen. Yeah. He was not saved by praying. You know, a lot of our friends say, Say the sinner's prayer. All you have to do is say the sinner's prayer. Uh, uh, Billy Graham taught that for years. I saw just recently his son Franklin Graham was on TV, and he was saying exactly the same thing. If you believe, yeah. just say this sinner's prayer with me and you'll be saved. That is false doctrine. That's not how you are saved. Right. That does not rid you of your sins. It is, it's important to believe. It's essential. I mean, you can't be saved without faith. But if that faith doesn't lead you to be obedient, to repent, confess, and be baptized, you are not saved. Right. Well, I think it's important that you pointed out, too, that he was going to be told what he must do, yeah. not optional. You know, prayer now, as we've mentioned, or not prayer, baptism now that we've mentioned, you know, well, you get saved, and then it's kind of optional at some point in time, schedule, whenever you want to get baptized. That he was told what he must do, and what he was told to do is uh, arise, be baptized, and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So a couple things about that. His sins were washed away when he was baptized. I think there's a misusage a lot of times about the phrase calling on the name of the Lord. That's not calling out and, and you know, saying, you know, uh, talking to God. not just saying, Lord, no, Lord. He, yeah. You call on the name of the Lord, uh, he did, by being baptized. Exactly right. Uh, Kent says, when we consider all the recorded information about Paul in, uh, in Acts, we note that even devoted enemies of truth can be moved to accept and obey the gospel if they give such an honest investigation. The recorded information also demonstrates how Paul became an apostle of Christ and his successful work among the Gentile world. It is interesting to read about his opposition to false teachers within the church and how he especially fought the aspect of uh, the aspect of formed or warmed over Judaism uh, causing problems among local churches. Interesting, Kent. I think you're right. You know, I, I think Kent's point there is a good one. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus provides valuable evidence for us. If you could convince that guy mm-hmm. that Jesus was really the only the only begotten Son of God, then it's legitimate. I mean, that's positive proof for our faith. Uh, Grant says... Uh, the appearance of Jesus Christ to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus was not sufficient to have his sins forgiven. Jesus Christ uh, told uh, Saul to go to the city. It will be told you what you must do. Uh, in the water grave of baptism is where one's sins are washed away forgiven. Acts twenty two sixteen. why do you delay? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's what Ananias told Saul to do. It's what we must do. And Dwight says Ananias had been instructed to talk to Saul of Tarsus, who was lost. Uh, he he he, had, he lost his sight on the road to Damascus. Saul heeded the words and was baptized. We see in Acts twenty two sixteen, Saul's sins were washed away with baptism. So this tells us, without baptism, we are still in our sins. You know, that's just that's just a powerful point. I just uh, and all of our emailers mentioned it. And I think it's so clear. How how can anyone get around that, Josh? That baptism washes away sins. It's we're not saying baptism is the only thing, but it is certainly an essential thing. And we, I think, rightly conclude that 
you, your sins are not ultimately forgiven until the point of baptism. Yeah. All those preliminary steps, hear, believe, repent, confess, all that's necessary. In fact, to be baptized without those pre- preliminaries, you're just getting wet. You're just getting wet. Yeah. But when all those preliminaries are in place and one is baptized, it is at the point of baptism where the blood of Jesus is applied to our sins, not until then. Yeah, I don't know how you can get around it. It seems so plain to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's just a curiosity and a, and a real shame that people want to argue that point. All right. We're going to grab our last break. When we come back, we've got two quick, two more quick conversion stories to look at, Cornelius and the Philippian jailer. We'll get to that right after we come back from this last break. Stay with us. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A recent survey found that 45% of U.S. adults say they pray daily, compared to 58% who reported doing so in 2007, and 55% who said they prayed daily in 2014. However, 32% said they seldom or never pray, which is close to the 29% of U.S. adults who identify as atheists, agnostics, or, quote, nothing in particular, unquote. That information is via the Christian Post. The Word of God says in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3, 17. Now back to the program. And we're going to the top of the hour to talk about lessons we can learn from cases of conversion in the book of Acts. We want to talk about the case of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Of course, that's a really long, uh, the, the whole chapter deals with the conversion of Cornelius. We don't have time to read it all. The the really important thing about the conversion of Cornelius, I mean, it's all important, but I, I think the, the the really important thing is that Cornelius is the first instance of a, of a Gentile uh, receiving the gospel message, obeying it, and becoming a Christian, which is really important to all of us, Josh, because we are Gentile people. Right. And so it's important that the gospel message was opened up to the Gentiles. And Cornelius, his, his case uh, uh, proves that or demonstrates that. Actually, what's well, kind of interesting, again, we don't have time to read that whole account, but it's interesting how Peter became persuaded that the gospel should go to Gentiles. Yeah. He, as a Jew, he wasn't associating with Gentiles prior to this. And in fact, when he had a vision initially, he, he he objected mm-hmm. to doing anything that would make him unclean as a Jew, including associating with a with a, a, a Gentile. But the Lord persuaded him that was what was supposed to happen, and and he went. And, and so Cornelius's conversion uh, is is the first gen- yeah. case of a Gentile. Well, and the plan's the same. It just Peter had to be convinced a little bit in yeah. order to go. But the plan's still the same. He still had to believe and be baptized. Exactly right. Now. At the end of chapter 10, uh, as Peter was speaking, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, this outpouring of the Holy Ghost was was the baptism of the Holy Ghost. In fact, if you skip over in chapter 11, uh, Peter retells this event. And he says in Acts 11, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. The only thing that Peter could compare this to was what had happened to him and the apostles on the day of Pentecost, at the, as he says, at the beginning. This was this baptism of the Holy Ghost wasn't happening right along. Uh, it, it was it was a very rare thing. The only in fact, the only two recorded instances we have of it, the apostles on Pentecost and Cornelius and his household in Acts 10. But you can see the significance of it. So in the case of the apostles, we see the gospel is going to the Jews. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jews representatively by way of the apostles. Now the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And God proves that this is what he wants by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. Representatively, the whole Gentile uh, ethnicity received the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews did 
representatively in the case of, of Cornelius. Right. It wasn't a command, and it didn't happen to everybody. It was a promise, never yeah. a command. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And there were right. thousands of people that, that obeyed the gospel, believed, and were baptized in between the, the very first sermon being preached and then uh, exactly. Cornelius. And, and, and that Holy Spirit baptism, by the way, did not save Cornelius. Right. That's right. Because it goes on to say in verse 47, Acts 10, 47, Peter says, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So, you know, Holy Spirit baptism, very important thing here, in this, mm-hmm. in, especially in this episode, showing that the Gentiles are fit subjects of the kingdom, but it didn't save them, and they still needed water baptism for the remission of sins. Right. Uh, what else? You see anything else in that? Um, just Well, just to kind of prove that Cornelius was a good man. Verse 2 said he was a devout right. man. He feared God with all his house. He gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So sort of, again... Sort of like Saul of Tarsus. Uh, it, so Cornelius, uh, he believed God. He was devout. He prayed always. He did a lot of good deeds. He, that, that's about as good a description as a man yeah, you'll find I mean, anywhere in the Bible. That's right. So it, it's kind of interesting when you think about the uh, the Ethiopian unit. He was a devout man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about Saul of Tarsus, he was very mm-hmm. religiously zealous. Right. When you think about Cornelius, he's described as a devout man, a good, a very good yeah. man. If we gave that description today to people and said, what do you, what do you think he was saved? The majority of people, uh, religious yeah. world, say, oh, he's got to be. Yeah, he's such a good man. Yeah. If if you can be saved just on the basis of moral goodness, Cornelius was saved before this even For started. Sure. Uh, Kent says, the conversion of Cornelius and his household provides us with the information of the first Gentile converts. Such information fulfills Old Testament prophecy concerning God's love and concern, not only for those of the Jewish nation, but for all the world. It is interesting also to learn from Acts 11, 1 through 18, that Holy Spirit baptism was not a universal command, but rather a special promise to a certain class. While the apostles of Christ received Holy Spirit baptism to bring them uh, unto apostolic authority, Cornelius and his household received the like gift as a demonstration uh, to the Jewish Christians that God was granting the same opportunity of salvation to the Gentiles. The apostles, along with Cornelius and his household, were the only recipients of Holy Spirit baptism. In Ephesians 4, verse 5, we note that now there is only one type of baptism which is acceptable to God. Uh, and Acts 19, 1 through 6, indicate that such is water baptism unto the remission of sins. I think you're right on that, Kent. Uh, Grant says that this case of Cornelius shows that the gospel is for all, both Jew and Gentile. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Good point, Grant. Uh, uh, Dwight says, Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man who believed in God and prayed to God continually. As a believer only, Cornelius was not in a saved condition. Peter spoke of Jesus of Nazareth, and the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles listening. And Peter said, surely no one can refuse these to be baptized who had received the Holy Spirit, as did we. Peter then ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly right. All right, really good. Cornelius, very great case of conversion. Very important. We are going to run out of time here if we don't hurry on to the last one. The Philippian jailer. Skip over. We're skipping over some vital information here, Josh, but we get to chapter 16. We got the case of the Philippian jailer. Uh, so Paul is in the city of Philippi. His traveling companion is Silas. We don't have time to talk about how they got thrown in jail by, by, by virtue of persecution. They were beaten and thrown in jail. They were singing praises to God. They were in the, they were in the jail. Uh, they were, they were fastened in the stocks and what we would probably think of is sort of like a dungeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an, so, but they're still singing and praising God in the, in the middle of the night. There's a great earthquake miraculously because I don't think an earthquake could necessarily cause this to happen on its own. But there's a great earthquake, and all the prison doors are opened, and the, and the bonds are loose. The prisoners are free to go. And the jailer is about to kill himself because he's responsible for those yeah. prisoners. Yeah, and they're going to get loose, and if he's, he's going to lose If his they're life. gone, then he's going he's gonna to pay with his life the next morning for sure. He's ready to commit suicide. Uh, Peter says, do thyself no harm. We are all here, verse 28. 
Verse 29, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Most important question in the world. What must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Oh, wait a minute. So when he said, what must I do to be saved? They said, all you have to do is believe. Well, they didn't say all you have to do. He said, well, how do you, how, so I'm saying, I'm stopping right there. When he, when he said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus. 100%. I believe on the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Are you going to tell me I got to do more than that? Well, it's verse 32. It says, yeah. they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And then verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straightway. Exactly. So they, so they believed and were baptized. We understand what that, so the believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, are we saved by faith? Absolutely, yes. yes. But that faith must be a faith that leads us to obedience. Yeah. If it's not an obedient faith, it's not a saving faith. So I think I was obviously sort of doing that tongue-in-cheek, right. Josh. A lot of people want to stop the reading at verse 32. Yeah. But read it all. So they taught him, and he was baptized the same hour of the night. Now, I think this proves the necessity and the urgency mm-hmm. of baptism. Because if you think about it, the jailer was, was really taking a huge risk when he took these prisoners out of the prison in order to be baptized in the wee, this had to, it was sometime after midnight is what we would refer to as the wee small hours of the morning. And he, he was baptized and he brought them to his own house. Obviously by morning he had them back in the prison, but he took an enormous risk Mm-hmm. to take them out of the prison in order to be baptized in the same hour of the night. If baptism was not essential to salvation, why did Paul allow this man to risk his life to be baptized in the same hour of the night? That doesn't even make yeah, sense. He, he just said, we'll wait till some other time. Yeah, yeah. So you're saved now because you believe. And when we get when, when all this kind of calms down, we'll get you baptized. That's a good thing to do, but it's not necessary. Right. No, he didn't tell him that. Uh, I think it's clear that it was essential. His, his baptism for the remission of sins, in the case of the Philippian jailer, is clear. Uh, Kent says, uh, this, set, this, this uh, sets forth the story that even a hardcore pagan serving as a punitive agent of the Roman government can convert to the truth when presented with the gospel. This passage also disproves the false <laughs> doctrine of salvation by faith only when studied in its totality especially verses 32 through 34. Grant says when one realizes that he or she needs to obey the gospel, they must not delay. They, did, they didn't delay here. Good point, Grant. In this example, the jailer and his household were immediately baptized uh, when they had received the gospel. And Dwight says the jailer was watching over the prison cell where Paul and Silas were held in stocks. The earth quaked and the miracle of the prison doors opened and the chains fell from everyone. The jailer was going to kill himself but was told not to do so. The jailer asked what he must do to be saved. Paul told him to believe in the Lord and you and your household. Then that very night, the jailer and all his household were baptized. He says, so in all of these accounts, each and every one, we see that baptism was part of their salvation. Along with baptism, we see that they heard, believed, repented, confessed. All these accounts show the importance of all the steps of, uh, in becoming a Christian. And I think you're exactly right in that, Dwight. Uh, one quick thing. Again, to the mode of baptism, or, or, or no, not, not the mode here, to the question of infant baptism. Sometimes when we study infant baptism, the case of the Philippian jailers is brought up because it said he was baptized, he and all his house, uh, uh, straightway he was baptized, he and all his. This is one of the cases of what they call household baptism. And the argument that is made is, well, in any given household there might be infants and so there might have been an infants in the in the jailer's household and so this would be a case of infant baptism that's a lot of ifs there might not be that's a lot of ifs but notice verse 32 they spake unto him the word of the lord and to all that were in his house yeah. everybody in this man's household yeah. was old enough to hear the word preached right there weren't any infants baptized in the case of yeah. the philippians infants can't hear the truth and believe it exactly right so all right. Well, we made it. We had to hurry there to get through all those. But just, again, I, I just want to reemphasize what we said at the outset. This is what the first Christians did. This is what they did to be saved. This is what they did to become Christians. This is what they did to be added to the church. Could we be wrong if we did the same thing? How could we possibly be wrong? In fact, 
we'd be wrong if we didn't imitate and do exactly what they did under the guidance of the inspired apostles. Totally agree. Yeah. So cases of conversion in the book of Acts, really, really important. Kyle, any final thoughts? Yeah, it's a good study. I think I hope people don't come into this with their preconceived notions as with Church of Christ people talking about baptism again, which, you know, where hopefully these examined all the steps of salvation, all that we need to take into consideration. Just hopefully put, put your own things aside and, you know, look at the cases of conversion in the book of Acts. It's exactly. plain. It's exactly plain. right. Exactly right. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, good. Josh. Appreciate Thanks, your help. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back with another edition of the Virtual Bible Study next week. Same time, same place. Until that time, read and study your Bible. Live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.